Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for May 2014. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen inexplicable post-credits teaser, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there everybody, I'm uh, writer, hyphen director, hyphen survivor of post-budget dystopia, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest... Hello, my name's Sarah Cordwell. I'm a registrar, film and media museum registrar, I should say, and slash writer, um, and film enthusiast, I guess, is the best third <laughs> wheel to that one. That's the most important of everyone, is just film enthusiast. <laughs> yes. Yes, excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, what have we seen this month? I'll answer. Before you can jump in, I'll tell you what we've seen this month. We've seen The Zero Theorem. Haven't we? Right? Yes. Yes, good. yes we have seen the Zero Theorem. <laughs> because that's the highlight. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a new Gilliam. Get, sure. Uh, like, I'm always excited when there's a new Gilliam. Yeah, true. Yes. And they don't, you know, they don't come along every day. So No. It's very much uh, cut from the same cloth as Brazil, which, which sounds like a great thing. It's like he's really interested in how insular we become with technology, like how it sort of takes over our lives. And like the film doesn't really work, but I still... Like, it's Gilliam. Like, I prefer his failures to most other filmmakers' successes, so I was totally on board with this. I, I actually felt it was his best film in years by default because oh, yeah. I haven't particularly liked anything he's done since the 90s. There's a through line, and, and it wraps up in a kind of a satisfying way, and it's, it seems like the most attention Gilliam's paid to story in a long time. It kind of cribs from every Gilliam film ever made, from the anti-authoritarianism thing to, you know, how distant we're all becoming from each other. And it sort of swings between an old man rant and technology. I felt a lot of it was like, yeah, yeah, you are in your 70s. And just like, what are these bloody kids doing with their computers? But then the other half is this really sly, intelligent, funny satire on the way we're commodifying sex and the way we're becoming more inhuman. And it's almost like it's, it's the human race are grasping to retain their humanity. And that I liked about it. Mm. Yeah, I have to say I'm really with you too on the not having much liked his film since the 90s because... Thailand for me was such a misfire and I walked out of that feeling so like this was the wrong person to do the wrong film and since then just haven't been that excited about what he's done but this one like even though I struggled at the beginning because I almost felt like it was a bit of him going back to what his success of Brazil but just not quite reaching it yeah somehow he won me over that that nostalgia actually started to work for me and I got so wrapped up in the characters and began to really love what he was doing because it was really like an old man doing commentary on what was going on in the world but not in a not in an aggravated or angry way but in a quite analytical almost fond at times but also not uncritical way mm. we, yeah. we sort of had the same journey because i feel like yeah because for the first half hour i'm going this doesn't work and you as you say it feels a bit like gilliam doing gilliam and then gradually it kind of gets funnier and you get more into the christoph Waltz character and the son of management he's mm. he's quite good he's good um, tilda's great i didn't even recognize her yes i know although i have to say she seems to be popping up in a lot of films in this sort of Northern yeah. England, Scottish, kind of crazy person with butt teeth. <laughs> that seems to be happening in a few things. Yeah. It's a new um, Yeah. And but Matt Damon. I know, and it was such a lovely way to present him, this just great thing with his costuming blending into every setting he was in, just added to this completely mythical aspect of this management, unseen management, almost to the point where you actually really weren't sure if he really existed. Mm. Well, after several years of X-Men films, lots of different directors, we finally have Godzilla. Sorry, I was just trying to throw Paul off with that. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> my segues are now designed to mess with him. Yeah. 
Or you couldn't figure out a segue between Zero Theorem and Godzilla. Either Look, either or. way, either way. <laughs> it's out there, it's been done. But yeah, Godzilla, second American remake. More successful than the first one? I'm going to say yes. I know that's going to be controversial. That's a very controversial thing to say. I know there was no really? Puff Daddy doing uh, Led Zeppelin oh. over the end credits, but still. I miss yeah. that. Don't you Don't you just miss, uh-huh, yeah, over Robert Blatt? Don't we all miss that? that yeah, that really fixed, fixed Zeppelin. Yeah, was, There'll that, be a nightclubbing community out there that really disapprove of what you I know. <laughs> but yeah, I've I got to say, there was. Uh, I, I didn't know why they were going to remake it. Like, I couldn't really see the point it feels very anachronistic and it feels like any attempt to make it would fall flat and yet really Gareth we would the idea I thought the giant monster idea especially in those early films it feels it feels very much of its time to me and I couldn't but, see but how it so dials into something we're going to talk about in a little bit yeah it's I, a I, natural, very much so. I know natural that I, recruit for that but, but I didn't think that would necessarily make for a good film <laughs> and I think that the line that um, that Gareth Edwards has walked is extraordinary, where he's taken this, you know, that sort of post-Christopher Nolan po-face thing where all these previously silly films are now very serious? Yeah. He takes the best elements of those, which is grounding us in this reality that helps make the extraordinary feel extraordinary, but isn't afraid to go silly. I was, I was amazed at how yeah. much fun he had with it and it was such a, a, a dangerous line to walk but I think he nailed it oh sure yeah no I really think so too and um I kind of like that this film completely obliterated the other one <laughs> like I've now really nicely forgotten that that film ever existed yeah. but um it was such an amazing surprise as well like I was walking into it thinking you know this is probably going to be pretty enjoyable it looks quite amazing visually but I was actually really surprised by how impressed I was with it too, just as an action film and the pathos around what was going on with Godzilla and the human characters around him, bringing up these aspects about the natural world and how people are starting to lose connection with that and then what it means to deconstruct the the new world and sort of try and source back into that and just the sort of the sensitivity around Godzilla himself and how he was treated as well. And just a complete change in that sort of action genre of sort of military prowess over everything else. And often that sort of comedic aspect of scientists within these stories disappeared because suddenly the military and the scientists may not have always understood each other, but they worked quite sensitively together. It understands what makes Godzilla films work first. Godzilla has to be the hero. I kind of get annoyed at people saying, oh, the, the human characters are thin in this and everything. And it's like, well, name me a single human character from the 40 or so Godzilla films we've ever seen. Can I tell you, the, the thing that bothers me about that argument is, like, I, I don't think the fact that the last 40 Godzilla films have had bad human characters is necessarily a way to excuse thinly drawn Not characters but, in this. But like, in 2014, like, we're... You know, and I think most can... blockbusters have terrible characters. You know, know, like, that, that like, you know what I mean? Like having characters that are sort of half decent puts it above. That, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I just sort of feel like, yeah, I, look, it's not an excuse, but at the same time, don't nail its balls to the wall for not doing mm. that. Because, like, well, no Godzilla film has ever done it before. What made you think this one was going to be any different? Yeah, and I think it didn't necessarily ignore characters in this film either. I mean, I think there's a big problem with the female characters. I agree. Particularly Sally Hawkins, who, you know, she's a scientist and the military characters even defer to her at one point to ask her advice and she immediately looks perplexed and looks at her senior mm. um, she sensei. She always had to defer she was there to ask it, questions. which was a shame. 
Um, and, and the other female character was there to die and another one who was there to wait for her husband. It was that, yeah, that see, bothered me. That thing, that it bothered me too because I was like, you know, it tricks this female character shabbily. And then I thought, but what do the male characters yeah. do? They dump exposition, they run in fear, and they're useless. Every human character has those three traits. They, I, they I run, they they're useless, yeah, and they true. don't know what's going on, yeah. and they dump exposition. So it's kind of like when you apply the torch to everybody, it's like, oh, yeah, you're all kind of ciphers yeah. in a way and yeah. uh, but i but i kind of I, I think it gets the spectacle right it got the the monsters there's a genuine sense of wonder it has that kind of epic serious nolan face thing going on but it it continually sends out a wink to let you know that mm. we're, we're having fun here guys we don't really believe that this is as serious as we're making out this is kind of and in the end i don't think it's a film that is overburdened with ambition I don't think it surpasses what it sets out to do, nor do I think it falls short. I think this is a film, and this is such a relief of like, it's a blockbuster that just sets out to do what it does and does it efficiently. Mm. Yeah, I, I should say, by the way, my, the, those problems I do have with the characterizations doesn't stop it being one of my favourite films so far of the year. I, it's just, you wow. get so much right. The awe and the spectacle and the scale is all so good that, yeah, it's, I can forgive it its sins quite easily. And the action scenes are great. You can yes. see so everything is not shaky cam. You can that's make right. out everything that's going on. And bordering on the sublime at times, like mm. the parachute jump is oh. just a work of genius. What? Why <laughs> and open the I know you sing the yeah. 2001 soundtrack, it just adds this amazing mm. otherworldly spectacle to it and, and a beauty to it that you mm. just don't see very often. Yes. You know, they're really using their technology and what they've got at hand to the best possible degree, I think. Stunning. Now, I've been getting pretty angry lately, as I do from time to time, about the state of Australian cinema. And even though it is a systemic problem that won't be solved by one or two or three great films, I do like that my disappointment has been challenged by two films, both made in Adelaide. Adelaide, who thought? Who, knew? who would have thought? Hey, Adelaide Festival City, give it a break. Actually, yeah, the, I've always been impressed with the film festival. But yeah, um, yeah two films this month from Adelaide. Um, the first being 52 Tuesdays which is a film about a, a teenage girl dealing with uh, her mother undergoing the transition from female to male. Beautiful drama. It was shot over 52 weeks. Like, I kind of thought I knew what all the beats would be. I thought there'll be denial, there'll be acceptance, there'll be rejection. You know, these, even though it's an unusual story for cinema, there are still beats that you expect it to take. And this didn't take a single one of them. From the word go, it was on a different path. And it was so interesting, and it, and it felt so real, even though everything was surprising about, about the way every character reacted. I, I, yeah, it's a really interesting piece. I think you're right. It kind of took it into places that at the beginning I was kind of worried that it was going to be quite flippant about. Like, mm. you know, there was quite a sense that here we've got this, like, really kind of ultra-cool, ultra-well-adjusted teenage girl that's going through this really unusual situation and it happened so quickly, the sort of explication of what was going to go on. It was almost like it was too light, light on or something at the beginning, but that changed it completely mm. after that because it started to go into such deep territory about what it was like being a teenage girl at this time and what it was like going through this relationship change with her mother and then father mm. and what effect that was having on her, but also what her own attitude and what her own just the very nature of being a teenage girl was having on her and mm. sort of her awakenings regarding the rest of her life with her friends and her attitude to sexuality herself and but also her attitude to privacy and 
and, you know, the meaning of putting things on display and the impact that would have. Mm. And, you know, partly going to why her father then was being quite, like, not wanting to be with her all through the week, mm. you know, having to deal with that. There was that sort of aspect of not wanting to put things on display that ran through the film all the time and people having to get to a point where they can understand it properly before they can communicate it. Mm. It's such an interesting film and it comes out at the, at the same time as uh, The Babadook, um, the horror film. That um, Now, I, I don't know, should we mention, uh, Paul and I gave to the crowdfunding campaign for this. We, we've never met the director or producer. Like, no. we don't know the people. We just, I think it came at a time where we were both kind of flush and it just looked really interesting. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling quite good about that decision, you know, having seen the film. Yeah, well, having seen only part of the film, <laughs> but, um, but that's actually not because of the quality of the film. It's more, um, well, it is actually, it's about the high quality of the film because I was terrified and unfortunately I just got to the point where I realised that I was going to be having nightmares for weeks if yeah. I kept watching, so I only made it through the first sort of half hour or so. But it was so beautifully performed and the tension that was building um, mm. with this story and the creepiness of just this book, which is just this really docile object and this story that was just having such an impact on this woman and her son uh, and their relationships with other people around them was just so cleverly drawn mm. up to the point mm. that I saw it. Um, so I'll be really interested to hear <laughs> how the rest of it panned out. Really. Yeah. Yeah. It was rubbish. No, um, no it's... <laughs> It's got a really gets its hooks in in terms of the way it builds suspense and dread, but but it's but it's as much as much of the unease is being built through this relationship between mother and son, and between this this single mother and her kind of excitable, slightly out of control son who she's struggling to understand, and she gets no time to herself whatsoever, and it's just that kind of thing. It's like she bounces from work to the son and back and forth, and she's really struggling to deal with it. So it's good for an impending parent to watch. Um, <laughs> Indeed. And I think that might have been why I couldn't watch anymore. Sure. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe something lighter like we need to talk about Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would do. <laughs> it's... Um, and that book is so creepy, <laughs> the images. But, yeah, it, it, really, um, it really is skilled at building this great sense of, of, of unease. And then when it delivers jolts, it really mm. does it beautifully. It's not in any way a hardcore horror film in terms of what we're kind of used to from the studios these days, which is good. It's a lot more, it's a lot more dependent on suspense and on atmosphere and concepts and relationships, which is really great. I liked it a lot. I have to say I found the coder a little bit drawn out and I knew it was all absolutely apt, but it just mm. kind of let the air out of the tyres a bit for me. But otherwise, I, you know, I had that great feeling that you watch when you catch yourself halfway through an Australian film and you feel like, hang on, I'm enjoying this as a film. <laughs> Not because it's an Australian film. Like, I had that great feeling. So yeah. that that's endorsement enough for me. Yeah, this is um, one of the best films from, from Australia I've seen in quite some time. But, mm. yeah, but I, I just felt, yeah, if they'd gotten out a little sooner, it would have been one of my favourite horror films of recent years. I, I'm a big fan of The Coda, partly because it, it isn't just really effective as a horror film. Like, if, it, if that's all it was, it would still be great. But I think in the tradition of great horror films, it also has this incredibly strong subtext yeah. about, you know, it, it, it really is about um, more mental illness. And I think that... Every choice it makes is in service of that. But it's also about literally letting go of your demons as well in mm. terms of it's about trying not to live with the past and yeah. having the past kind of, you know, the past being the husband that left. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. My only 
complaint is really that it tips its hand a little too early in that sort of like what everything means. And so I, I, I didn't mind that so much because I would much, I'm a great big scaredy cat and I would much rather find a film interesting than terrifying. Yeah. So once that happened, I was like, Oh, okay, that's what's happening. Okay. I think I'm on yeah. board now. And I was less scared as it went on, but that's like such a minor, minor problem that I have. I, I just adored this film. So nice work, Adelaide. Yeah. <laughs> so you may have noticed at your local multiplex of late that there's a lot of things being destroyed. Every other blockbuster these days has to level a city or level a country or level a world. And there's kind of this obsession we have now with apocalypse porn, is what I like to call it. Uh, it seems to be this, this whole thing like you can't spend over $100 million on a movie without it being essential that some sort of civilization is brought to ruin. And I'm just wondering where this is all coming from, because if you look at action films of 10, 20 30 years ago, this wasn't the case. And it's not only because special effects. I'm talking about Godzilla, but everything from Captain America to Spider-Man to Man of Steel, everything kind of involves this kind of levelling. And I tend to have this personal theory that it's an American hangover from 9-11. Because there's even scenes, there's a scene in Godzilla where a, a plane or a helicopter slams into a building mm. and everyone's kind of looking up at it, which is very much like it's taken straight from the 9-11 playbook. And I was wondering if, uh, what did you guys think about all this? I, I agree that 9-11 is a big part of it. Um, I, I don't think you should discount the CGI element too much because I think there's this one-upmanship. It's like a, an arms race of who can destroy the most because it's spectacle that gets put in the trailers and that's what draws people in and whoever can show that theirs has the highest stakes. I do think that is one big element is the special effects. Yep. Simply getting to the stage where you can simply write building gets destroyed, city gets leveled. And no one talks about, oh, can we achieve that? How will we do this? Just accepted that, we, yeah, we can make that happen. Yeah, that's very true. But it's interesting, actually, that I don't necessarily think it's that new a thing. Like, it might have been manifested in quite different ways over time. But you can kind of go back to the movies of the 1950s where you start getting, particularly the science fiction genre, where you get civilization as they know it being deconstructed or destroyed, whether it's in a small town or whether it's a city or whether it's simply a little community. Mm. And um, there's this really interesting writer called Mike Davis who wrote this book called Ecology of Fear, and he discussed Los Angeles and the deconstruction of Los Angeles in the 20th century, and he actually literally counted how many times it's been destroyed, and it's like 138 times. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Surely <laughs> in New the York's 20... caught up by now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shortly followed, I think, by New York. So that crosses both film and literature as well in sort of in his research. But it's just that very interesting thing that in the 80s in particular, I think it, it came up too, particularly with films like Blade Runner, where you've got cities being deconstructed culturally rather than literally. So mm. the commodification and kind of um, homogenisation of the culture is actually the destruction rather than a physical manifested destruction. Mm. Um, and you start getting in the 90s, you know, the alien invasion films. So you've got the classic scenes of the Sydney Opera House being destroyed <laughs> yeah. or the Chrysler building and that sort of thing as well. So it's quite literal there. But there are also films about environmental destruction. So films like The Day After Tomorrow, I think, is one where everything freezes mm. and civilization is sort of deconstructing itself. So this manifestation of destruction in many different ways kind of follows a similar pattern, even if the destruction type is very different. I mean, I think in the 2000s we've got very literal, So, and I think you're right about that. September 11 um, disaster, that actual physical destruction of the city has become quite 
poignant in people's minds and is sort of happening worldwide all the time. So part of it can be about coming to terms with that. There's a really interesting line in War of the Worlds, I think, where he talks about life as we know it yesterday no longer matters. So, you know, the the world has been invaded by these aliens. So therefore, nothing we were doing yesterday, studying or working, is actually that mm. important. It's more about our survival together and what we do um, from here on to survive and connect as people and continue. And I think that's actually part of the fundamental underlying part of it, even like kind of Hollywood blockbusters, particularly something like Godzilla, mm. you're getting back to that thing that actually rather than a deconstruction of civilization, it's a rebirth of it. Yeah. So it's this wish to destroy what perhaps we've created that we can no longer handle mm. or that has become something that we didn't ever intend it to be. Mm. That's interesting because I remember when Independence Day came out, that was a big thing with that. It was all about humanity is unified in the face of a common enemy. And it was no more because everything up to then was always like it was the Russians doing it or it was the, you know, South Africans in mm. Lethal Weapon 2 or whatever. It was always some kind of racial sort of thing. And, and this was a way to kind of get post-racial and just sort of say, well, we, we're, this kind of event brings us all together. And it's interesting you say the whole tear it down, start again thing. It's, it's a more hopeful view of it that I kind of like. The cynic in me says that they are, like Lee says, feeding on the CGI thing. And it's this game of one-upmanship who can destroy the bigger thing and create the bigger spectacle. The cynic in me also thinks it's become lazy shorthand for stakes for screenwriters. Yep. It's like, it's this lazy, what are the stakes? Well, the world's going to be destroyed. Well, the land, the country's going to be destroyed and all this sort of thing. And, and it suddenly becomes this lazy, like, like they're not thinking of any, well, you know, what else could be the stakes? What else could... I, w I wouldn't just put on on, uh, on screenwriters because once you're writing at that level where you can actually have citywide destruction, you're answering to producers yeah. and execs who, who who would be saying, "Hang on, why are the stakes so small?" Yeah, that film I just saw. Studios, no, yeah. yeah, studio films. But I think it's there's another element to it. It's not just the CGI. And there's something beyond the 9-11 thing, which is that we're talking a lot, in a way that we haven't since the 1980s, we're talking a lot about civilization ending. Back then there was the nuclear threat, there was the Cold War. Well, the um, 50s that you were mentioning well, before, it's all about the Cold War. The 50s was. And, and the atomic and, age. But through to the 80s, where, you know, there was this, the, the doomsday clock, you know, it was always coming close mm. to midnight. Since then, we haven't really talked about it, but now with climate change, we're all very conscious of the fact that civilization isn't something that will always be here. And I think that is feeding into the conversation a bit on top of and the rest of it. WMDs yeah. and North Korea and things like that mm. as well. I, I also can't help thinking, again, cynically, that it's sometimes cynical use of 9-11 imagery. It's like, oh, because Americans... Because I don't think anyone outside of America really understands how deeply wounded Americans were by 9-11. Mm. And I think that sometimes that's an easy... It's like, it's like people putting rape scenes in movies in order to, to motivate you know, a character out of pure mm. cynical needs when it doesn't I have any subtext. I see what you mean. This feels like the same thing. It feels like if we show this thing going... I'm not blaming... I'm not saying this about Godzilla. I'm yeah, saying yeah, other yeah. movies. But if we show planes going to buildings, if we show cities toppling, people, Americans can relate to this and it will scare them and it will have that effect. I don't think, I don't think it's cynical. I think it's a, the, the way they deal with it. It's the way they're dealing with the trauma is by showing it happening and then showing them conquering it. You, you know, know far be it from me to suggest that Hollywood is doing something non-cynically, but... <laughs> I think in this case, it, it, it might be might be so, or maybe it's a mix. Well, I think it's, yeah, it's also probably partly about coming to terms with something like that, but it's mm. the, the climate change thing that you mentioned, that's something that the world is coming to terms with, particularly the Western world, because mm -hmm. ostensibly we're really the parts of the world that have caused the problem. 
Um, so it's kind of grown from that 9-11 fear to kind of really a global fear that the, our way of life is coming to an end because, quite frankly, the world can't handle our way of life. Mm-hmm. And where do we go from here? Nobody sort of really understands what we're going to do. It feels It's feeling like it's a mix between all of these factors. Like, I can't discount any of them. And, look, you can draw a line to the late 90s. You can draw a line to pre-9-11 films like Independence Day, like Armageddon. You could say that it's all Michael Bay's fault. <laughs> like, between, between... And, you know, Pearl Harbor came out in 2001 and was planned before 9-11 mm. happened. So you're kind of looking at Armageddon and Pearl Harbor, which deal with this destruction. And that's why I say apocalypse porn, because it is this kind of lingering on the minutiae of destruction. And that's kind of what I find a little bit troubling. And, it's and spectacle. It, it's I, I yeah. think. Yeah, I, I don't know why I'm I'm leading towards the, the non-cynical argument, but I do think that there is, you know, cinema is the one art form that is meant to convey, like, what is it like when you watch a building fall over? Cinema is the one place where you can see that. But surely we're more interested in watching characters fall apart, aren't we? Yeah, but I don't think they're trading it for that. I think they're, what happens when these characters are in a situation when a building falls over? I think it all goes hand in hand. And it's not necessarily to say either that all of these films are actually really doing anything other than, as you say, kind of pornographically repeating the the visions of um, buildings falling down, but there's some films where you feel like the subtext is a bit deeper Mm. and the impact that you see on the characters within the film, um, if they're a bit better drawn, you know, you are feeling that there is something else going on other than this pure spectacle and taking advantage of technology. So we all agree, apocalypse porn, Michael Bay's fault. <laughs> sure, Absolutely. if that helps. Yeah. If that makes you sleep at night, that's fine. So Sarah, please tell us whom have you picked for your Helen's for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. I have picked the very fabulous Jim Jarmusch. Hey, hey. <laughs> so, so what is it about him that you, uh, that you love? Oh, look, I think um, the first film of his that I saw was Mystery Train. Mm. And there's just something about his, as you might have gathered already, I'm a little obsessed with urban and environments and people in cities in film, but just something about his fundamental humanity in his depiction of characters and what they go through. You know, you could be seeing something incredibly ordinary on screen, but he manages to make something quite extraordinary out of it. I mean, I no, in a lot of his interviews, he talks about how he, he wants to leave the viewer to be the interpreter of his films. He doesn't discuss the meaning. He doesn't go back and talk about his movies. He doesn't even watch them again after the <laughs> first sort of run. So, you know, there's just this beautiful thread across his work about how people are reacting to the world that they're living in, how they're excluded, how they're stratified, uh, how they're lost or or how they're trying to find their way. And Mystery Train... I guess, was one of those films where you've got three stories where that was really at the forefront and that was my first introduction, so I was just in love with it, really. (laughs) (laughs) He's such an interesting guy and there was a story I read um, just the other day which sort of sums up his approach to filmmaking because his mentor was Nicholas Ray, the great, you know, noir director. And Nicholas Ray read Jarmusch's first script and told him not enough happens in it. So Jarmusch went away and rewrote it so that even less happened in it. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? And that is very much like he pulls things back to such a level that you really are seeing how people are reacting to place, how people are reacting to what's happening to them in such a basic way, you know, even in sort of the film Stranger Than Paradise, you actually don't see any exterior action or events that that um, propel the narrative. They're, 
it's all happens externally. All mm. you see is those in-between moments where mm. the characters are together and bored or, you know, reacting to what's just happened. Mm. So you're literally pulled completely away from events and totally into people's relationship to those events. Mm. And, uh, yeah, permanent vacation in 1980s, first feature film. That's... Uh... It's a mixed bag. Who is this, like, I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't want to be disrespectful, but... Let's just say that he learned a very valuable, possibly learned a very valuable lesson with this film that he immediately rectified with Stranger Than Paradise is that if you're going to make a minimalistic, internal, cool kind of film, cast charismatic leads. Absolutely, because the, unfortunately the lead actor that plays Ali in this film is just so difficult to watch. Yeah. Um, I think the girlfriend initially that he leaves is probably the best performer out of, you know, out of those scenes. She's the one where you can you can see the potential. You can see mm. Jamush beginning, you know, just her smoking a cigarette in the window while he packs up and tells her he's going off. Because that's the main problem because the journey's great. It looks mm. – it immediately mm. sets up his style of, again – these disenfranchised kind of or wandering characters going through this sort of existential sort of ennui against dilapidated city backgrounds. Going from person That's to person. Right. That's a real template for yeah, a lot of those films. It is very much. And that walking through this really dilapidated urban environment where it's almost like it's war-torn. There's yeah. been mm. some kind of disaster, which well, we were just talking about. They mention it, don't um, they? Don't they hint at a war that happened? They, they do, but there's this sense that there's an illusion. There's a sort of insanity mm. about that war. So it's his mother who believes that there's been this big war they're grounding that in it being something to do with insanity but it starts to become a thing where you don't know really if that is her insanity or if something actually has happened well there was a documentary uh from a few years ago called blank city which is really about the no wave movement and Jarmusch is one of, like, a lot of them, like, come off like wankers. Uh, a lot of people go to is one of the few people in the documentary where you go, okay, that guy had something going on. Mm. Yeah. I find that really interesting because the way they talk about New York when they were living there, all these artists, is it really felt post-apocalyptic. It felt like New York's best days were behind it. And certainly New York of that time was notorious mm. for being, having run-down areas and almost looking post-war. And... I think that, you know, Jamo shoots New York like it's post-war Italy. Mm. And in, in fact, a lot of cities, like you say, a lot of cities are shown to be that sort of post-war feeling of it's desolation. Al- it's almost a neo-realist kind of look at these yeah. things. The other thing that's quite striking in these early films is you've always got characters seeing the city, seeing the big built-up business centres of these places that they're in in the distance, but they're never there. They can never actually get there. They're separated from that. And, you know, often that sort of disaster element is more about their social and economic circumstances Mm. or what they've been through because of those circumstances. So it's more about that humanity of destruction rather than a science fictional yes yes it's it's a yeah it's a physical representation of their own disillusion or their own separation from society that's right but then there is the great uh stranger than paradise in 84 yeah just at lurie it just oh, totally. John Why isn't he in more films? I know. Yeah. What, a, what a face. Yes. Like, he just has so much expression. Well, both of them. His, his friend as well. Yeah. Who was... Richard Edson. Yeah. The great Richard Edson, who was an 80s staple for a long time, even in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, and... yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're really, they've got a real charisma, and so when there are these long, languid periods of nothing happening, you still want to watch because those guys are so yep. interesting. 
Yeah, mm. that's right. And, and Esther Belint is a nice kind of still point between mm. them. And it also establishes this thing that becomes a bit of an obsession or a theme with Jarmusch is this sort of a foreigner's eye view mm. to the world around him. And often Jarmusch has seen himself as a foreigner, not only in other countries, but in his own. And sort of establishes kind of the outsider coolly taking in this kind of the fringes, I guess. That's right. And it's also the fact that life seems to be happening to them rather than the other way around. So their control over their circumstances or their control over what's going on is actually really quite minimal and particularly in Stranger Than Paradise, you know, from, for one thing about the events being invisible, but you've even got scenes where they're watching movies where the action is happening in reflection on their faces in the play of light and they're constantly going places. Like they're travelling and you see them in the cars and the hotels, but they're, they never really get anywhere because mm. wherever they try to go, they end up in a much paler mm sort of replication of that and yeah. can't seem to get access to the culture that's around them. What's well, the thing? Because at, at, when she says she's going to, I'm going to forget, Philadelphia or something, Pittsburgh, I can't remember where. Cleveland. But Cleveland. And yeah. Edson keeps saying, yeah, it's a nice town up there. And then they finally get there and what they're seeing is a shithole, much like where they came from. <laughs> Absolutely. And even to the point where the big iconic tourist attraction of the lake is invisible yeah. because it's winter and it's <laughs> mist and there's snow and it's frozen and they can't see it. And you even have his friend's character talking about it doesn't seem to matter where we go. Like we think mm. we're going to see different things, but we always end up seeing the same things. Mm. So next was Down by Law in 86, which is so much fun. I mean, it. Uh, Basically, a, a buddy comedy with John Lurie, Roberto Benini, and Tom Waits. You Best. Can't oh, beat that. Best. <laughs> this is my favourite. What a match made yeah? in heaven. Of his films, yeah. <laughs> this is the one that's almost perfect. Mm. I, mean, I just... Lurie just makes me laugh just by his... Like, he doesn't even have to say anything. Just his... Re, the way he reacts to Tom Waits and Roberto Benini kills me. Waits is just... Brilliant. I mean, the man's pure charisma. Mm. And Benigni should just do Jarmusch films. He's always <laughs> oh, hilarious in, in Jarmusch yeah, films. Yeah. And just their dynamic. And it's such a beautiful, ultimately hopeful film. It's, yeah, it really is. As well, it? which not all Jarmusch films are. No, like, because the sense of entrapment at the beginning is so strong. I mean, you're dealing with two very vain characters at the beginning. Like, if it's Tom Waits with his boots and, <laughs> you know, John Lurie having a gun pointed at him and he doesn't even notice because he's dressing himself up in the mirror. You know, that sort of thing. They're both incredibly vain, but they are really quite trapped. So they're living in these worlds where things are, again, like the characters in Stranger Than Paradise, they're just having things happen to them to the point where Tom Waits, when he gets his offer, I think, of the driving the car off the street, he's literally, like, shadowed under this building with mm. the other guy towering mm. over him. And both of the characters are con in these confined spaces when those moments happen that send them off to prison and, you know, the journey. Yeah. Into another confined following. environment and then when they escape. That's it's all right. And then it's open it's spaces and there's a bit of a release yeah. once, you know, that all goes on, which is quite beautiful. It's like mm. he's journeying through hope through those two films and down by law he's... He's gotten there. But even, even when they're wandering lost in the swamp, mm. you still feel safer because of the way he shoots cities. Cities feel dangerous in a way that the landscape doesn't. Yeah, and, that's um, right. And I think he shoots Memphis that way in Mystery Train in 89, mm -hmm. in that even though it's a tour, it's depicted as a tourist spot, it still looks like it's dilapidated and done and over. It's and shot exactly what you were talking about before, about the business district and everything with Memphis Lively is over there. Mm -hmm. We're here. Yeah. And there's a clear distance. And they're constantly, walk characters are constantly walking on that street where you can see 
modern Memphis in the distance. And it's almost like it's a city that's picked up and left and moved a few hundred metres down the road. It's like, because, you know, there's once a cinema and there was once this great recording studio and there's all these one-time landmarks, there's this hotel, and there's all these great landmarks. But it's like at some point Memphis outgrew that and then had to build a bigger city 100 metres up the road and this is what's left here. Yeah. This and is this husk of legend and, mu- and, and really the ghosts of the past are the only thing keeping it alive. Yeah, well, they're kind of dominating it really to the point where the, there are characters that keep um, the, I think it's the English character and the Japanese character in the first and last story, keep being mistaken for impersonating Elvis when actually they're wanting to be interpreted as Carl Perkins. So they've got (laughs) a totally, but this ghost of um, quite literally in the second story just dominates this place in such a moody fashion. And it's interesting actually that Tom Waits is the DJ, mm. the silent DJ in here, because you almost imagine that the Tom Waits from Down, <laughs> down, by, down law. by Law. I wondered that. I yeah. kept waiting for him sort to of say. escaped and then, you know, yeah. you know, his escape was successful, but he's ended up again, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. Um, he found his job in Memphis, but it's a Memphis that is quite oppressive. Mm. It's not a Memphis that's free. It's still very similar to the areas that they walked through in Down by Law. And it won't be the first time he shoots the opening of a film with grabs, like, fades up and fades down on a train. Mm. That's something, I, I think travelling is something that's very important to him. There are always cars Definitely. or trains or horses or something. Yeah. Always road trips. I like that Mystery Train is a bit of an anthology film because he really likes that. Like, yeah. There's, like, because his next film in 91 is Night on Earth which is all these cab drivers around the world on the same evening. It sort of has that connective tissue of being... It's all the same night. We see the clocks at the beginning of each segment, but they're all so distinct. It's interesting because Night on Earth is actually probably one of my least favourite, not in any way that it's a lesser film, but for some reason it feels more like an exercise Mm. to me. So Mm. the strength of Mystery Train was that really strong connection between the stories and the characters and... You know, there was something running through the whole film. Um, is it a sense didn't... of place? Because we're talking about how I he shoots places. And even though there are different characters, Mr. Train mm. had the same place that mm. A Night on Earth doesn't. Yeah, and places. it sort of has an engagement with image too through the whole mm. thing. Like everybody's about presenting an image. And they're beautiful vignettes and some of them are definitely better than others. Like the New York one I thought was really gorgeous yeah, and quite right. a devotion to New York filmmakers. But it did somewhat feel like a bit of an exercise. Mm. So there was a bit of a disconnect between what he was trying to do in each place. Mm. Yeah, it, it definitely kind of feels like he's having fun with that one. I, I did find mm. it quite fun. I, think, I, I thought the Bellini one was hilarious. <laughs> but, it's, um, but, yeah, it is that. It feels a lot less substantial than a lot of the stuff that's around it, definitely. But, it's yeah, I, I still had a good time. Whereas his next film in 1995, Dead Man, is not just my favourite Jarmusch film. It is one of my favourite films of all time. This was a a seminal film for me in my teenage years, a very influential one. Um, His languid, you know, postmodern Western style, I'm still, like, nearly 20 years later, still trying to figure out what that film is because it's just so... It exists in a world unlike any other. You can identify Mm. it with other Jarmusch films, but I still think that it... It's unlike anything else ever. Yeah, okay. I have to say it's one of my favourites as well. And um, it might be that sort of separation slightly from this city, this sort of, you know, mm. moving through these spaces. He's now very much gone into another realm, you know, entering into the Western zone. But 
It's also just that the actual poetry of his style came out so strongly to yeah. the point of those beautiful, you know, moments cut in black. Mm. There was just like a set of stanzas going all the way through that you felt in his other work. But here he was really showing it to its um, strongest and most kind of lush degree yeah, with the Neil Young soundtrack. Yes. And it was just such an interesting... He hadn't lost that sense of civilization because I think the whole... I feel like the whole film is a move from a version of civilization which is a bit more fake and mask-related because Johnny Depp at the beginning, his clothing is just mm. like out of this world, even from the sort of era that mm, you, yeah. you know, you've seen replicated in films over and over. But, it's, you know, it's the descent from that civilization, but then the move towards another one, which is mm. actually much more fundamental and mm. um, steeped in Indian culture and engagement with the land mm. and people's place in the land. He was praised for how accurate it was, like, in terms of Indian culture. It's one, apparently right. it's one of the most accurate films in terms of wow. depicting mm. uh, that, that culture. But um, I, th I think one of the things that strikes me about the film is the sense that he's dead from the moment the shooting happens early on mm. but for me i always felt like he, he's dead from the start of the film like the train journey is a trip to the afterlife mm. and i think that's why i found it so powerful because everything's so surreal and nothing is quite not, there's nothing that's quite real in this film mm. it's just it, i think it's perfect cinema right you know? see to me I, I found a lot of it felt like jarmusch's jodorowsky film to me <laughs> dealing with what you know whites had done to to the American, uh, Native Americans, and but also dealing with this kind of metaphysical journey through death and through mm. reconciling one's own life and, and, and growing and, and kind of becoming a more soulful kind of human being, getting in touch with more fundamental energies. And yeah, I, it sort of felt like Jarmusch doing Jodorowsky. <laughs> That's interesting, uh -huh. yeah. Um, it is a stunning looking film, and like mm. I guess we kind of know Jarmusch now for these attractive visuals. and for a while, like, there's there's nice stuff in the other films, but this takes it to another level. This is just jaw-dropping to look at. Mm. You began to see the kind of casts he could assemble as well. It's an extraordinary cast. Amazing cast. cast. Kind yeah. of nuts. I mean, Robert Mitchum, goodness me. Well, Robert, Robert Mitchum, I forget. I'm kicking myself because yeah. I can't remember the name of the film. Robert Mitchum starred in a film that Jarmusch saw when he was seven, which pretty much set him on the oh, path. I was like Thunder Road. Really? Was it Thunder Road? I think so, yeah. Because, yeah, it set him on the path to becoming a filmmaker, and he got... Mitchum's last on-screen role yeah, wow. in that's pretty amazing, this film of all it? films. So, yeah. And, yeah, his first collaboration with John Hurt and Johnny Depp's best role ever, in my opinion. Yeah. But it's also, I think it's one of the greatest scores of all time. It's one of my favourite musical scores ever. Yeah, I see. I'm not a Neil Young fan at all, and I love this score. Mm. Well, this he, score is amazing. Well, he went on from, from this, because his next film was Year of the Horse in 97, which is half documentary, half concert film, which uh, was good. It's very jarmushy, uh, and I, I like it a lot, but I think you have to be a Neil Young fan to really, like yeah. a crazy horse fan to really... I'm uh, glad I skipped it. <laughs> well, I think score is a really important aspect of his films. Mm. I mean, it's not um, un it's not unexpected then that he's a musician himself, as we've experienced very much in yeah. his last two films. Mm. His use of score and a use of music is so incredibly per like yeah. perfect well, to his scenes in his films. Like he's That's got right. such a a connection. Like he, he's put you know Tom Waits and Iggy Pop and the RZA and all these people mm. turn up in his films. He really loves musicians, I think. Well, he has a band of his own. He yeah. has his band Squirrel, 
But yeah, his you can't talk about Jarmusch without talking about his music, like those scores. Mm, absolutely, every one of his, and often those actors score the films. Like Waits has written, done music for, does the music for Not Enough. John Lurie, John Lurie has done yes. music for a bunch of them. Even yeah, the films he wasn't right. in. Yeah. <laughs> So ninety nine was Ghost Dog was it the the Way of the Samurai yeah the subtitle Which yeah he's sort of stepping into Asian culture and African American culture all mm. at once seems almost inspired by the Wu Tang Clan well yeah look Ghost Dog I think is right up there as well as Dead mm. Man as one of my favourite films and the the joy of rewatching this was just yeah. amazing because I think again here he's really concerned about aspects of civilization but here it's um. You know, the loss of ancient civilizations or the loss of ancient cultures that you're feeling through the main characters. Mm. So, um, Forrest Whitaker's character is very devoted to the samurai culture, but he's recognizing that that culture is no longer able to survive in the environment he's in. And even the gangsters, you know, before the sopranos are this faded, mm. jaded, fat suburban characters that really actually they don't have the image and the cool and the sophistication that you're used to seeing gangsters portrayed with mm. you know even to the point of a quite melancholic moment where one of the gangsters referring to Forrest Whitaker's character to Ghost Dog um, pursuing them as saying he's taking us out like real gangsters <laughs> like we're real gangsters he's so he's quite it. happy about yeah. it but it's actually you know it's fatal but He's celebrating that. There's a scene where he puts a point, like, they're, they're all sitting in the back room of a Chinese restaurant and someone comes in and, like, they can't even afford to pay their rent. And the guy goes, yeah. what kind of operation yeah. are you running here? And <laughs> all <laughs> these fat old gangsters sitting around. Like, yeah, and know. all their houses are for sale. So the, car yeah. the castle is for sale yes. as well. And they're constantly talking about things are not the same anymore. Mm. Well, it's, it's funny you should say that because I realise that the, uh, mm. the through line in all of his films is this idea that our best days are behind us. That there's always a sense of longing for better days, like the, the vacant cities in Permanent Vacation, Stranger Than Paradise and Mystery Train and Night on Earth and William Blake's death in Dead Man and both Ghost Dog and the gangsters in Ghost Dog are longing for a bygone era. Don Johnson, the Bill Murray character in, in Broken Flowers, reliving the past and he actually says to the guy at the end you know the past is gone mm. that's an actual quote there's the intense self-reflection and limits of control the vampires and only lovers left alive pining for great days that are past there is a quote in ghost dog which sums this up where he says although one would like to change today's world back to the spirit of 100 years ago mm. it cannot be done and jamush himself has said in interviews that he doesn't like nostalgia and i think that t ties to the way he makes his films in that He's not wishing those days would come back. He's looking back at them with a sort of despair. Mm. I think that's a fundamental thing, actually, about that thread, because I think you're quite right. Um, but once you get to something like Ghost Dog, you've got the characters actually recognising that that's happening, because a continuation of that quote, I think, is about putting your faith in the generation to come. Yeah. You know, and you have that really hilarious but also quite frightening scene of one of the gangsters doing um, a public enemy song. Yeah. <laughs> Which came, which um, with came two out of his boss, yeah, yeah, John, which actually um, found out that gangsters love hardcore. That's right. So there's this yeah, recognition. Right. The old Italian guys. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And there's this recognition that that is what's taking over. So yeah. may maybe there's sort of criminal scene partly, but you've also got this generation of sort of loud and proud rappers and gangsters mm. that they're actually respecting as well because you know he's playing the soundtrack as well at yeah. times. Yeah, I, I was wondering where that came from because that seemed yeah. <laughs> kind of like yeah 
almost I mean, advice. It, but. it gets quite, um, perhaps quite literal towards the end because you've got the young girl yes. taking on the book. But again, there's this idea about passing on things but not passing them on in the same way, that mm. this is a new generation that's going to do everything differently. Mm. And then uh, the, another anthology film, Coffee and Cigarettes in 2003, which is a series of shorts that he'd made over many, many years, and then I think shot some, some more. Lots of fun, this filming. I actually would go to say this is one of the ultimate chill-out movies. Yeah. <laughs> it is It's one really of the best chill-out movies I've made. It's yeah. just one of those things you can just... It's so much fun. You can watch parts of it, put it away, come back to it. You can zone in and out of it. It's just wonderful. There's so many musicians. <laughs> yes. Again. And yeah. like yeah. this whole sort of deconstruction of celebrity and what they're like in real life. And, and that's all kind of really interesting as well. And it's so beautiful to look at. And you just kind of want to light up and have a coffee afterwards. Uh, yeah, and the scene, the short with um, Tom Waits and Iggy Pop is just yes. great, that sort of conflicting ego yeah, sort yeah. of scene that you kind of imagine. I mean, they're playing that imagined version of um, celebrity musicians, yeah. but because they're such strong performers, they, they just carry it off so well. I think the last one is incredibly poignant. Mm. I mean, it's very much a chill-out film, I think. But that last one is really poignant with the two old men on their break and mm. they're pretending that they're drinking champagne, champagne and they're imagining things. I mean, it takes you right back to Down by Law where Roberto Benigni is drawing windows on the yeah. prison wall yeah. because he's actually able to look out and imagine life outside whereas the other two are so stuck. But it's his, their relationship with him and their journey with him that actually sends them into the hopeful place that they end up in, hopefully. (laughs) It's just such a beautiful set of vignettes because it it just captures those little bits of human connection in very different circumstances in different ways but really without any pretension as well. It's so relaxed. Mm. I love it. But one thing with Jarmusch that I I find is kind of interesting is he is – a very global filmmaker in terms of like he's thought of as being very New York. He's from mm. Ohio, you know. Yeah. It's like he's frequently looking around the world to set his films or have his stars. And something that seems quite rare is that I can only think of three, maybe four examples of where he gets actors to speak in an accent that's not their own. In almost every one of his films, he allows the actor to speak in their own tongue or their own Mm. accent or their own, you know, like you think most films routinely have British actors playing Americans. Mm. British actors are almost always playing Brits, even though they're like in Machine, you've got John Hurt and Mm. one of the few exceptions is Gabriel Byrne. It's one of those things that's it's something to be kind of really valued is letting people be themselves. I think so. I think it goes right back to what you were saying before about Stranger Than Paradise, that he's actually willing to engage with the idea of foreignness. Mm. So um, being foreign in a foreign land, but whatever that means for each person in each movie. But he's he's not shying away from the fact that there are these characters that are dropped in the middle of something that they don't necessarily completely connect with. Mm. And then in 2005, he made the film that Bill Murray almost retired after making because he thought he could never give a better performance. Broken wow. Flowers. He was so happy with his performance in that, as well and he should, so be. should yeah. be. It was so good. <laughs> There's a definite melancholy there and mm. a definite mm. mourning of the past, but you never get the sense that he's, again, it's this jar machine thing, you never get the sense that he's nostalgic. Mm. He doesn't really want to go and revisit all these people. Winston's forcing him to. Yeah. And he's but I love the, way, the fact that his name is Don Johnson, not because everyone keeps making the joke that oh like the actor yeah. but because it's a Don Juan story but set after Don it's like oh, Don Juan going back Don to all of his conquests yeah like he's revisiting yeah 
or Don Giovanni or, you know, it's yeah, that yeah. same myth. Definitely. But also, um, as you were saying before, I think about the fact that he realises by the end that you can't go back and mm. that actually going back has done more damage to him than mm. than anything else. And, you know, but it, he takes, he sort of takes on despite himself this imagined son that he might have mm. to the point where he really terrifies that young boy at the yes. end because he's just, he's still hanging on to it even though he's saying to Winston that... He's not interested in it anymore. And it's interesting how the film progresses from quite positive visions of revisiting the past to actually something quite violent. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he's progressively becoming more and more enmeshed in quite a hellish journey Mm. of revisiting these worlds that he really shouldn't. That's right. And to the point where the actual quietest and most poignant one is where he revisits the grave of Mm. one of the girlfriends Mm. who's dead. And that's actually the sort of reality of it, that these relationships are dead. You know, you can't go back and revisiting them is only a way of hurting yourself and everybody Mm. around you. I I think possibly his most personal film is Limits of Control. Really? Yeah, I think that's about him as an artist, or or him as a person. Like, I think... I would have said divisive. It's divisive as well, Mm. sure. Um, Yeah, like, I loved it the first time I saw it. I rewatched it the other night and I was exhausted and just couldn't connect with it. Yeah. And it wasn't until I looked up my original notes on it that I remembered what I loved about it. And I think, you know, I'm always going about how mood affects your viewing yeah. of it, but mm. I was so into it that first viewing and really saw each character who monologues at our, our lead as, you know, saying something about Jarmusch's work or how he views his mm. own work, you know, his passive observance, his inability to fit into the world, his own artistic inclinations. I think it is a film about him as a filmmaker. Right. That's my theory. Yeah, certainly that, that sort of makes a lot of sense in, because he, the main character is journeying through those cultural ideas. So each character he meets talks about a different aspect of culture, mm. whether it's film or whether it's art, whether it's music and even down to hallucinogenic drugs, like people's different way of both expressing and dealing with um, what's around them through culture. Mm. See, I found it, like, because I was kind of very distant from it for quite a while. And this is beautiful. Everyone's great. But it's like, what is going, what is this? Like, what are you, what are you saying here? And it wasn't until the last 20 minutes or so when it all starts sort of coming together. I thought, oh. And suddenly it, it sounded like the best idea ever. It sounded <laughs> like bohemian terrorists against yeah. capitalism and against yeah. commercialization and against and everything everyone's talking about it's old guitars and it's old mm. movies and it's yeah. um you know and like you know hurt is looking at these bo- these kids are so-called bohemians but it's clearly a cultivated commercial look and he's like my grandfather wouldn't have you know regarded them as bohemians and and suddenly and you've kind of got and the fact that he strangles him with a guitar mm. string yeah. and everything isaac de Bunkholt, interacts with everything that kind of he uses from it's all about imagination it's all about art he goes to he goes to the gallery all the time to get these messages mm. from yeah. paintings and it's the, and it's it's all his his weapon of destruction is art because that's what they have right and there's a constant reflection isn't there through the whole film so you're seeing things interpreted through his eyes but you're also seeing him and other people reflected in surfaces and mm. there's even reference to you know how things are reflected back at you through culture how that compares with the actual reality in front of you so mm what the difference and what the importance of those two elements is. And the Bill Murray character, what a beautiful, like, short 
What a great performance. He just screams Um, someone like a Rupert Murdoch type. You know, he just oozes that thing of that he doesn't care about the cultural life. He's Mm. only interested in the the moment of making money and of commodities. And that's something that runs through all Jamush's work. And it's just so interesting that when he meets, say, John Hurt with the guitar or any object like that, they have to have a human story behind them as well. So he tells Mm. him about the history of the guitar and um, the person who played it, and that very much goes into his next film, there's always that idea of people connecting with life through culture. Well, yeah, and then Only Lovers Left Alive just came out. It's uh, the vampire tale as only Jarmusch could do it. (laughs) And again, yeah, that connection to music, that sort of longing for the past, it's... You know, the great monster movie tradition of the humans being the ones who are the monsters. That's um, right. You know, they call them zombies. You know, they refer to them yeah, as zombies. Yeah. And again, shooting Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't have to do much to Detroit to make it look post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. But again, showing a city mm-hmm. in that light. It's uh, and such a great film. And, and it's a film that really... I don't. I, I couldn't quite see how, if the others just alluded to it, but mm-hmm. Only Loves Left Alive puts a real point on it. The fact that this is our wreckage. Mm-hmm. This is humanity's wreckage. This is what we do to great things that we've built up yeah. we destroy them we create we consume we destroy and the vampires are transcending that yeah um, but they're seeing you know their time is running out as well i, I gotta admit it took me a little while to get into this film because first it felt like kind of hipster overload but <laughs> it was very stylized at the beginning wasn't it yeah and <laughs> also too i think it's also making fun of the hipster thing a little bit as mm. well but you know i i wrote shakespeare's books or i was there with yeah. eddie cochran or whatever but yeah. then it, yeah it takes on this real poignance and beauty and by the end of the film it's quite i mean it's also very funny it is and i think i mean that's we've talked about quite serious stuff with jamush but um his comedic sort of sense Mm. is pretty high yeah and often to very poignant results as well even to the point where tilda swinton notices this mushroom that you know is growing despite the desolation around it but that's also not necessarily she talks about it being unusual at that time of year. So there's a real connection to the contemporary concerns of civilization mm. deconstruction now mm. about climate change. So he's starting to get into that natural world. Um, you know, the vampires get sick if they drink the blood of a human yeah. because they're, tox- they're toxic effectively. Mm. So they're trying to get their blood through other ways, but also because they've chosen that in a certain dignified manner too, that they're not preying on humanity that they're Mm. living their own life yeah that moving through space and traveling that you were talking about before is still in this film i mean it runs i think watching all of these films quite close together i've started to read probably links in them that maybe jamish himself wouldn't be (laughs) but um but there is this constant traveling through these cities and the cities by night and in cars and from trains and there's this constant observance but the characters are always sort of looking out at that and affected by that so deeply and you feel that effect so much and the the vampires in this film are no less Mm. sort of part of that Mm. work interest i think like it's almost like he invented a a pace of storytelling that only he can access and he's such an extraordinary artist you know for someone who who doesn't like the auteur theory as he himself has said he is one of the most distinctive auteurs And I just, I, I love revisiting his work. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was so much my pleasure. Thank you very so much for much. having I'm me. I'm going to have a cigarette and a brew now. <laughs> and a quick announcement for our listeners in Sydney. We're going to be doing our very first live show. Uh, if you come to the uh, Festival Hub at the Sydney Film Festival on Thursday, the 5th of June, 2014, 
you'll get to see Paul and myself talking to Michael Altman about the films of his father, Robert Altman. So come along to that. Don't worry if you can't come to it because we're going to be recording it. That's going to be our next podcast. But if you can come along, that would be great. And it's at 5.30pm. Also an important piece of information. <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month. Right up. Yes, so I want to get a whole of major burns. Tell, tell him we're going to have to hold a couple of surgeons over, surgeons over the night shift. I'll put in a call to General Hammond and Sol. I really hope he's going to send those new surgeons. We're going to need them.